This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. It's time for lunch. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Time for Lunch. I'm Hannah Forden. And I'm Harry Rosenblum. Typically, our young listeners and their parents tune in to hear a deep dive into a single ingredient or object that you might find in front of you at lunchtime. But this week, we're going to shake things up. We're sharing a conversation that we had with two fellow podcast hosts who are also parents. Things might sound a little different than usual since we're sharing an almost unedited conversation. This episode will be fun for parents and older siblings. We hope you'll enjoy. Our guests are identical twin brothers and podcast hosts here on HRN, whose specialty is the intersection of food and music. I'm Greg Bresnitz, one half of Snacky Tunes and co-author of Snacky Tunes, Music is the Main Ingredient. Hello, I am Darren Bresnitz. I'm the other co-host of Snacky Tunes. What is Snacky Tunes and what does it mean that you are each one half of Snacky Tunes? Snacky Tunes is a podcast that we started back in 2009. Um, I had done radio since uh, I was 18 and I really wanted to get back into it. And so it was a podcast that took uh, both of our interests, but of which Darren was much more rooted in food and I was much more rooted in, in music and combined them. And originally the podcast was first half food and second half was live bands um, and music interviews. And then just over time, we saw that chefs and musicians were giving us the same answers to different questions um, and that they really were the same people who use different creative means to express themselves in the world. Yeah. The idea of combining food and music was an idea that came to me in college. I was working on developing a cooking show that hadn't yet been seen before, which later on went to be dinner with the band. And we had just seen a lot of the parallels from the DIY basement indie scene starting to creep into the food scene as well. Um, I was living in Boston and I thought that wouldn't it be interesting to have chefs and musicians chat with each other under the guise of having a meal together. And through that combination, uh, dinner with the band was born, which was born at IFC. And then out of that, um, when we thought about doing a radio show together, we thought that taking that same combination of food and music would really work, especially in a radio format. And that was Snacky Tunes. What sort of music do you guys like to listen to in the kitchen? Okay, this is Darren. So cooking in the kitchen really depends on the setting and the meal and who you're cooking for and what mindset you, you're in and, and when you're cooking. I know at the end of a week when it is that Friday night meal that I'm cooking, I'm usually going to lean towards something that is more relaxing something like um in a sentimental mood which is one of the best jazz albums of all time or something like a chet baker nina simone or maybe something like an essential mix um from the bbc you know there's a classic one by the 12s which i love that is a little bit more of a party vibe uh you know if it's sunday morning saturday morning again that's more of just the background music and to be honest if my daughter Josephine's in the house, then it's Disney hits. That's really what's rocking on the stereo. So Jungle Book, Tangled Soundtrack, Nightmare Before Christmas. That is a lot of what I've been cooking to these days. This is Greg. Uh, I usually try to 
put something really relaxing and calm on for cooking. So it'll be uh, Max Richter, Philip Glass, Niels Fromm, uh, either just some of their longer records or do a Spotify radio of them or do just kind of a, a mix up of them. Um, I've most recently been into Philip Glass's Mishima record, which was recorded in, like 25 years ago with strings and then redone uh, recently with piano and been playing that back and forth on, on loop. Because I'm focusing so much on the recipe, I like to just try to have something that's uh, kind of engaging in the background, but doesn't have a lot of lyrics. So for listeners who might not be familiar with Philip Glass's music, it has like a very specific like rhythm and repetition. Can you kind of paint a picture of the scene that sets for you? I fell in love with it when I saw a piece performed by LA Dance Project, um, mostly around the etudes. And it just really clicked with me. So it's almost like a ritual where I'll put on the etudes one through 20 and just know that it's going to be long enough for me to do prep cooking and still have a little bit left over for serving. But I'm generally thinking back to the performances that I saw by them. And it just puts me like in a really good creative space. So let's talk a little bit about the book and how the book is, is set up and what the relationship is in the book between the food and the music. You know, when we approach the book, we knew that the chefs that we wanted to talk to had to really love music more than just playing music or even a, a deep record collection. It really had to inspire them creatively. It really had to be something that was with them from childhood. And that is something because the relationship that we have had with food and music has been from childhood, thanks to our parents. And so we wanted to show that there was no stop or start to the relationship uh, with those two artistic disciplines for the people in it. And we wanted that reflected in the book. And so if you look at the way it is laid out, um, if you look at the first spread uh, of the chefs, it's uh, a bio and then a playlist with a head note. And then on the second page, it is a recipe with a song inspiration and that really shows sort of the mechanics in the more literal way of things are being interpreted with food and music and the creative inspiration there. But then when you get to the narrative, that's where it really turns into something absolutely beautiful and unexpected. That is where you really see their life stories and them sharing about what music and food has meant to them and how it has influenced them. And there were so many times during the interview process that Greg and Kong, who's our producer on the show, would just be texting each other and be like, I can't believe they're sharing so much with us. So much intimate material. That's so cool. Is there a specific example from the book that you can tell us briefly about? There's a quote from Asma Khan, who owned and operated Darjeeling Express in London, which unfortunately um, shut down because of the pandemic. And she says, she's talking about her grandfather and her being four years old and talking about music and things like that. And he goes, he said that heaven is a place where your favorite singer sits and sings in front of you, which to me was just arresting, you know? And then she went on and told all these beautiful stories about how music and food connected her to home after she moved away to London. But that sentence and that sentiment has always stayed with me is that music is just this force 
that stays with you both in your current life and whether you believe in the afterlife or beyond or other interpretations of that, that is what carries you on through your existence. Mm, I love that. Um, so this is not a visual medium. However, can you tell us what you two have in common? We're identical twins. It's funny. We're identical twins and we live in different parts of the country. And obviously now with COVID, we've been doing a lot of Zoom meetings or interviews and things like that. And we will both show up wearing a white hat or white t-shirt or dress similarly many times over. I mean, it helps when you're sort of pulling from the same sort of uh, aesthetic of comfort at home. But it's funny to see the exact same colors reflected in another Zoom window. Did your parents dress you like when you were kids? Yes. Thank you, uh, Gap Kids, for endless, endless mockery at school. It was like the dinosaur line, but like a red, a red colorway and a green colorway. There was also the endangered species line that Gap did in the 80s. And then I think the, I think the mockery just made us go, like, we need to dress ourselves. Not that it made much of a difference, but man, those color-coordinated sweatshirts and sweatpants from the Gap Kids, really just rife for ridicule. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. See? See? Yeah. Thanks, guys. Now I I got a new thing to talk with my therapist about this week. You're both very cool and stylish now, so don't worry. Thanks. Did the two of you collaborate a lot when you were kids? I mean, did you cook together? Did you work on things together, you know, when you were young? Not not really. We we were we both did theater together in high school. Um we had like a really incredible theater program that uh, we were we lived right outside of Philadelphia and it actually collaborated with the large Philadelphia theater program. So as opposed to like a sense of, you know, there was the cast and the crew, like scenery was built out, makeup props, um, lighting, et cetera. So we both did, it was called Lower Marion Players, did theater uh, productions for all four years of uh, high school, which was really formative. Um, it was the first time that uh, I learned the word aesthetic in a meeting at like 17, which I was like, what does that mean? Like, it's the way you feel when you look at something, which is pretty powerful to teach a 17 year old. Um, so we worked in that sense, but like we didn't have our own projects we didn't really collaborate on anything together until we started throwing parties together um right after i moved to new york actually we did work on some things in high school together uh we had a zine called sweet lovin the title inspired by um south park i totally forgot about that yeah (laughs) uh so that was a zine we put out in high school the first copy we made on our mom's at-home copier. She's a teacher and reading specialist. And uh, we almost broke her homemade copier. Um, but we we would make it and we would take submissions from our friends who, you know, wrote poetry, which I'm sure if you went back and read has got to be some of the most cringeworthy stuff uh, in the world. But, you know, a lot of the times um, we were also going to DIY basement shows and we knew people who were doing shows in uh, out of churches and things like that. And very early on, we saw that you could make things without people's permission, which I think to me is probably one of the earliest important lessons that I learned. And 
pushing those boundaries and not asking for permission or just saying, well, I'll go out and make it if it doesn't exist um, has led to some successes, uh, some really tough lessons the hard way, both professionally and personally, I will say. Did you guys ever struggle with sibling rivalry or or being too close or finding it frustrating to have a, a you know a, a partner in this existence or has it always been um like a positive creative exchange i think the best way to put it is that um you know there's always going to be extra things coming in when you're working with family it's never just uh a new per like it's never just a person that you met and then you joined up with i mean like sometimes all things are on the table uh, which is going to create different tensions within the working relationship. Uh, having said all that, you know, you are also aligned with someone who grew up with similar values, similar work ethic, um, significant point of views. And I think one of the strengths that Darren and I have always had is that um, me or him in, in a meeting or, you know, talking to someone or pushing things forward, we're generally going to give you the same answer and see things in a lot of the same way. So we're just able to cover more ground. I think even like in our weekly meetings with uh, the publisher, if one of us is having phone trouble, the other one just kind of picks up the conversation. So I think, you know, if you want to work with family, just know that there's, you know, uh, you have a little bit less filter um, in, in like kind of in disagreements. But when you align, it's, it's a pretty formidable thing to come up against. And the biggest piece of advice I would give for the younger people who are thinking about working with their siblings is figure out the best way to communicate, figure out the best way to say what you want to say and get information across, and then stick to that. And I think just having open communication, uh, especially among siblings or parents or family, cousins, whoever, is the best way to stay on task and stay focused. And, you know, you all have a shared goal. Success is the end of whatever project it you want it to be. And so just knowing how to keep those lines flowing is is best. Oh, I guess I would say one more thing is that like just leave room for evolution, you know, especially like if you're working with them once they've gone on to different paths and to different uh, jobs and different uh, experiences that the person that you're working with professionally uh, has changed from the person that you grew up with and leave room for that type of understanding. That's such good advice for parents too, I think, as kids get older to like allow your kids to grow up, allow your siblings to grow up. Everyone's allowed to change. <laughs> Are there any stories from your childhood that would be fun to share? I can at least say for me personally, I was like pretty much of a loner through like grade school and middle school. And it wasn't until I really discovered music and going to live shows and then the group of friends that kind of came with underage shows that I really began to find myself and find the group of people that identified that I identified with. Um, the nights were always complete um, after going to shows with going to our local diner, the Lanark Diner, which is actually featured in Silver Lining Playbook. That's the same diner. Um, and getting two eggs, cup of coffee, hash browns, toast for $2.95. That was always that was always like, it was that, and like, uh, like a thousand basement shows and underage shows and different musicians and things like that. And people you would talk to and buy their records from and buy t-shirts from. I'll take the other end. I'll take the family side. When we were young, we would go to Brooklyn to visit our mom's mom, our grandmother. 
and she had this apartment and I always felt that everything happened around the dinner table. She would always have this really amazing Russian style fresh cheese, this farmer cheese that we would eat. And we there'd always be this orange juice that we would press. And my mom would always play Billy Ocean on the car ride up. And then I remember after dinner, we would all play cards. There's this legendary game we play in our family called May I. And we were too young to hold the cards. And so my uh, grandfather, um, who had passed, but these are still around, he had sewed two margarine lids together with a button in the middle so we could hold our cards and play. But to me, it was always, and there was music, and we were hanging, and it was New York, and it was just like Coney Island. It was just, you know, just where are we? What is this? But it was always, there was always food, there was always music, there was always family. And you find some variation of that with a lot of people, right? Before, you know, this is the 80s uh, when we were when we were kid kids. And before everything, you know, was on social media or everything had to be like, well, what's the point? What's the story behind it? It was just like, you know, this just existed. We were just eating really great food and listening to really fun music and hanging out with family around the kitchen table. And that's just, to me, is what life has always been about and will continue to be about as we raise our own families. The last chef in the book, Shohi Yashuda, uh, had this incredible quote, and it's actually the last text in the entire book. And it just says, never forget, a chef is also an artist. And when he said that in the interview, we were so blown away. And it was just such a simple culmination of everything that we held so dearly and the reason why we wanted to put this book together. And it just so happened that the last chef in the book said it so beautifully that we, we knew that it was something special. They call that kismet. Big thanks to our friends, Darren and Greg Bresnitz. Their book is on sale now. So run, don't walk to your favorite independent bookstore and check out Snacky Tunes. Music is the main ingredient. Chefs and their music. Parents, you can find Snacky Tunes wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll hear from Greg and Darren a little bit more and we'll hear some special words from Darren's daughter, Josie. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to this special bonus episode of Time for Lunch. Before the break, we talked to 
Greg and Darren Bresnitz, who are podcasters and parents. We asked them to take us along as they hang out in the kitchen and do some cooking with their daughters. Hello, this is Greg. I'm one half of Snacky Tunes and the co-author of Music is the Main Ingredient, Chef and Their Music. My daughter was born at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we have been in no less than four different kitchens during this time, all with varying setups, uh, different tools, different pots, pans, spatulas, etc. And we have learned how to adapt in each of the environments. She just recently started on solid foods and we are going through baby led weaning. Uh, it starts with carrots, broccoli, and then some corn. Uh, a little bit of chicken and essentially anything we are eating, we allow her to eat and we just let her guide it. Um, if she's hungry, she eats. If she's not hungry, she pushes it away. But it's a very solid based uh, adult type of food experience that skips over the grains and cereal and just allows her to be part of the experience. One of the things that I have started to make for her every morning is a little omelet. And it's very simple, just a little bit of butter in the pan and two eggs whipped up over a high heat and cooked a little bit longer than I would. Uh, we just started adding Parmesan into it. It's very meditative. Uh, I found that uh, you have to watch it so it doesn't burn for her because you know that's not great for a baby. But I've never made the same dish over and over and over and over again um, without changing anything. You know, you make different dishes, you add different ingredients, you change the time, you mess it around, or you put it in rotation, but maybe it's a month between you cook it again. It's been really interesting cooking for her, making this omelet, doing it in a way that I know is for her, just for her, and also refining my cooking techniques, the timing, the heat, methodology, when to flip it. It's actually made me a better cook just by cooking the same thing and, and changing the variables. I also am so bound by the fact that I'm cooking for this little human that I love so much, and I know that I can't wait to show her how to make her own omelet when she's ready. Greg talked about something I think most parents can relate to, which is the need to feed your kids. How we approach that is different in every family. Cooking for your kids can be a great way to refine your own skills in the kitchen, and sharing cooking will create a lifelong bond. My name is Darren Bresnitz. My wife, Anna, and I are the proud parents to our beautiful daughter, Josephine, who is two. She is an adventurous eater, and we have taken her all over the world uh, and all over the country uh, when we can or when we could um, out to eat and really just trying to get her to experience as much as she can. Sort of anything that we put in front of her, we at least try to get her to take a bite, which was our mom's um, real inspiration to us that a bite won't kill you. What I love about cooking for her and with her is her excitement. She'll run in and say mac and cheese or yogurt with berries or cereal, you know, simple stuff because, you know, she is only two. But just to see her excitement and to know that out of the kitchen will come something prepared with love and for her to enjoy brings me a ton of joy. And I hope that she always associates the cooking that we do for her as something that does represent love and joy. One of my favorite dishes that I love to make for her are these muffin tin meatloafs. Um, they're really fun. They're really portable. They're great for her when we send her off to school. It's a portion size that she can control and that she can pick up. So what you do is you take some Japanese breadcrumbs, you soak them in whole milk, and that sort of creates the structure 
a bit of a binding agent. Um, you let that sit for about five to 10 minutes. Then you add in an egg and then you whip that together, add in your seasonings. I like to use salt, pepper, a little bit of granulated onion, a little bit of granulated garlic, a little bit of paprika for color. And we sort of mix that all together. And then we add in our lean beef. Then what I do is on a large side of a box grater, I grate about half an onion. I'll peel a carrot, I'll grate that, chop up some celery just to add a little bit of crunch in there, which I find to always have fun when you have these uh, soft meatballs to have a little bit of crunch on that celery. Fantastic. Mix it all together and then uh, oil up a muffin tin pan. And then I would say fill each muffin tin about mm, three quarters of the way up because they will rise a little with the egg. Um, but also allows the top to get a little bit of brown, a nice little crust. Whack it in the oven, 350 for about 20 to 25 minutes. You want an internal temp of around 165. You obviously don't want to be serving raw meat to your child. Pull them out, let them rest, and then uh, serve it up sliced with a little bit of ketchup because she loves her ketchup. I love the idea that one bite won't kill you. Sage words of advice from Darren and Greg's mother that they passed on to their kids. Darren and Greg both try to show their young ones that food is a part of who they are and the work that they do. Josie, do you like strawberries? Yeah. Can you say, I like strawberries? I love it, too. Do you like mac and cheese? Yeah. Can you say, I like mac and cheese? I like and cheese. Do you like it when Dad cooks you dinner? Yes. Do you like to go out to dinner with Mom and Dad? Yes. Do you like french fries? Yes. Do you like... Dancing in the kitchen? Yes. I love hearing little kids get excited about food. It's so fun to think that in 10 years, Josie can listen to this episode. I wonder if she'll remember it. Thanks for listening to Time for Lunch today. We'll be back next week with our season two finale all about pumpkins. This show is written, produced, edited, and hosted by Harry Rosenblum and Hannah Forden with engineering by Liam Werner. Emily Kunkel is our associate producer. Music in this episode was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks this week to Greg and Darren Bresnitz and Josie Bresnitz. Grownups, you can check out their podcast, Snacky Tunes, on HRN or wherever you listen to this show. Time for Lunch is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Time for Lunch is also a part of Kids Listen, the number one app for finding great podcasts for kids of all ages. You can learn more at kidslisten.org, and you can download the app from iTunes or the Google Play Store. Time for Lunch is powered by Simplecast. Please stay in touch. Whether you have a joke you'd like to share, a music you like to listen to in the kitchen, or if you'd just like to tell us what you had for lunch, we love to hear from our listeners. Please send us your recipes, poems, book recommendations, or anything else you think we'd like. It's easy to record yourself using the Voice Memo app on an iPhone. Ask a grown-up to help you email us at timeforlunchpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to include your name, age, and your address so we can send you something in return. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council. Thanks for listening.